Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello and welcome to episode 4-417 of the Run Run Live podcast. Welcome to all my endurance friends as the summer winds down up here in the Northern Hemisphere. Maybe you're wrapping up your racing season or deep into training for that last fall marathon. The September weather we've been having is more like August weather. It's been warm this week and it's been dry for quite a while. So the grass is turning brown after a very wet spring and summer. The days are getting precipitously short, and it's dark in the morning when I get up, dark in the afternoon when I go out, and soon it will be dark all the time here in New England, like the bottom of some deep cold well with a small circle of sunlight at the top peeking in to signal the long, lonesome memory of sunny days past and the long winter ahead. In the old days, in the farming days, this would have been the time of plenty. The crops are in, the larders are full, and the new beer and the new wine are fermenting. This is the time of Thanksgiving and Oktoberfest, before the slow march into the winter solstice. The ancients saw it literally as the death of the world, and then it would be reborn again in the spring. So I have just started running again after a couple weeks off. I came out of that last marathon, really beat up, and decided to give it a bit of a rest. And looking back over the spring and summer, I realized that I ran 10 races over that period of time, which is a lot for me. And it was uh, it was what I wanted to do after spending so much time heads down training, but it does leave you a bit beat up. And it is true that it's hard for me to ru- race easy. You know, you always say, "Well, I'm just going to treat it like a training run," but a race is a race. You know, once you get out there, you tend to you tend to push. And I've been getting Ollie Dog, the Border Collie puppy, out with me as often as I can, a couple times a week. He's going to be a big dog. We knocked out a couple of 10Ks out in the trails this past week. So today, this is Chris, by the way, your host. (laughs) Did I mention that? Yeah, this is the Run Run Live podcast. And thank you guys for hanging around. We were over, uh, we're coming up on a dozen years of doing that. Episode 4.0. 
17. That's amazing, this journey we've been on. I'm taking a little side path here, sorry. And thank you for you folks who keep sending me money for my uh, uh, subscription that I have, the uh, membership thing. Uh, it really makes a difference because there are some, just like everything else, just like everything else, there's uh, there's expenses here that I have to do to keep this up and running, especially as you get such a large volume of stuff. It costs a lot to keep it all sort of switched on and running and protected. So yeah, we got, now what, what did I count up? It was something like over, uh, over a thousand pieces or more. I've written a couple million words in this time period. But anyhow, back to the show. Today we have an interview with Robert Hamilton Owens, who reached out to me to talk about aging and fitness. Robert is one of those guys with an agenda or a passion, and his passion is convincing people that age is no excuse not to do stuff. You know, you can do more than you think. And it, I get a lot of this, uh, and I like it, right? I like these folks to be yelling in my ear and telling me I can do more than I think. It's It keeps me trying to do more than I think. Uh, I think it's good for the world in general. Robert has written a book, and he speaks on this topic, gets around. This is his gig. And he circulates in that hardcore we-can-do-anything group with guys like Joe DeSena from the Spartan Races and David Goggins. He's a retired special ops pararescue guy. He's an Ironman, 12-time Ironman. I think he had a TV show, and he's been a minister. And he did that seven marathons in seven days with uh, McGilvery last year. We'll hear us talk about that. And he is uh, he has been called the fittest 66-year-old in the world. I'm not sure if he's still 66, but he's, uh, he's a fit, fit old guy. So most recently, he went through the equivalent of the Bud's Seal Training Hell Week. They have this thing in San Diego where you can sort of simulate it. And that's the thing you see with the seals all shivering in the surf and carrying logs around and getting yelled at. So he's an interesting guy, a bit of a force of nature, the kind of guy you'd want on your side in a fight. One thing you may or may not notice, because I haven't really listened back to this interview since it came out of editing, is that I get a little bit less interactive towards the end, right at the tail end of this interview. And it's because I, I had set myself up in a conference room at work to take this call, and someone found me towards the end. There was some emergency, and someone found me and was sitting there waiting for me, watching me, <laughs> waiting for me to finish, which kind of cramped my style, that whole separating work from hobby thing again. But anyhow, today I decided to wrap the whole episode around the concepts of aging and what we're really capable of versus what we think we're capable of. And in section one, I talk about what the current thinking is on age and fitness. I think this would make a great book, by the way. Somebody should write this book. Maybe I should. Because there's there's this whole new cohort that we talk about, which is people who are living to be not only older, but uh, they're fit at the same time. And then that's a, that's a new thing in our world. In section two, we delve into that, that whole giving more than you think you are capable of topic and try to weed out the truth from the <laughs> magical thinking. And that's, that's the question for the week, my friends. That's your homework. How much more 
can you get out of yourself, and why aren't you getting it? Huh? Can you live up to or beyond that potential? And do you even want to? So, hey, why don't we go find out? On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. Fitness and age. How much is mental and how much is a physical reality? This is an interesting topic. So it turns out that it is, from our vantage point as endurance athletes, quite understudied and not very well understood. At least that's the impression I get. You see, we are the first generation to have, A, a life expectancy well into our 80s, and B, carry our pursuit of endurance sports with us. So this is lightly treaded ground, lightly treated and lightly trod. We are a new cohort. And as I looked into the published science, the published opinion and general commentary on this topic of fitness and aging, I ran into a few interesting things. First, there is this holdover, this hangover bias of older humans being sick, miserable, and depressed. So the baseline assumption here is that older humans are basically waiting around to die, which was mostly true 50 years ago, but not so much since the baby boomers got old. And second is that most of the quoted research is not using our cohort of endurance athletes Most of the studies and the generalizations that they lead to, the things that you hear as headlines, these are horizontal across a non-athletic cohort. So we're writing new rules here, just being who we are. We are the the undiscovered country. One of my conclusions is don't let anybody tell you how you're supposed to age. They don't know. Only you know, and like everything else, this process is specific to the individual. So let's take a step back and talk about the aging process. What do we know? What is it? Aging is an accumulation of damage at the cellular level that our bodies lose the ability to fix. And some of this accumulated damage is to our DNA, which all this leads to a higher incidence of some bad stuff in the aging population. So an increase of infections and immune disorders and a higher incident of chronic diseases like cancer. One of the things we find is these higher incidences across the population tend to skew the health results for the whole age cohort negatively, right? What else do we know? We know that leading a healthy lifestyle, as defined by not smoking, having a good diet, and regular exercise cuts the incidence of these chronic diseases for all age groups, to put it in technical terms, by a whole bunch. So that's it. By being an athlete going into aging, you are already way ahead of the herd health-wise. And that's the baseline. Since you're going in fitter, you're going to be mentally and physically healthier no matter what. The baseline of where you are starting from makes a, makes a difference. And by the way, you can tell your couch potato friends that the studies show 
you get these same health benefits from exercise no matter how old you are when you start. Boom. Win. But being endurance athletes, we don't care about that, right? Right. We care about our fitness and our performance. What does this aging stuff mean to my ability to do these things that I do, like marathons and ultras? What's the deal there? Well, I have some good news and some bad news for you. You can choose which is which. So studies show that you lose your max aerobic capacity as you age, starting in your 40s. Some some studies even show starting in your 20s um, and accelerating once you get over 60. So it's nonlinear. The older you get, the faster you lose it. This is measured by your VO2 max, meaning how much oxygen you can process, you can convert, and what the limit on your cardiac output is. So in layman's terms, you can't get the performance as high as you used to. Your top-end performance falls off. And I think this matches what people's experience is. And some studies found that aerobic capacity starts to decline in your 20s by 3 to 6% per decade. And then after 70, it declines at 20% per decade. And you also lose muscle and strength and balance. You lose somewhere between 12 and 14% per decade of your muscle mass past the age of 50. So studies also show that after the age of 40, men's fitness levels decline at a faster rate than women's regardless of physical activity. Hmm, interesting. Like I said before, the good news is that at any age, those of us who exercise will have a higher capacity. We're going to have 15 to 25% higher aerobic capacity than our sedentary peers. And that, wait for it, I'm going to quote directly here, is equivalent to being 10 to 20 years younger. This means a much higher quality of life, especially as you age. Sure, you're losing strength, (laughs) balance, and aerobic capacity, but it isn't debilitating like it would be in a sedentary person. You're modulating those effects by being active and being an athlete. Boom! Win! Just by being active, you're ahead of the game, and by staying active, you stay ahead of the game. One very interesting thing that I found that you'll love is that the top end VO2 max type capacity and performance, they decline, right? They decline and they decline pretty quickly, but your low end aerobic capacity declines at a much slower rate. And we know this to be true experientially. How many athletes do we know who moved into longer events as they aged and performed very well? This is because you still have that low gear. You can't go fast, but you can still go far and long. Plus, you have your experience, which comes in handy in these longer events. So how much is this is just mental, right? Is aging and the associated loss of ability all mental? Well, it turns out it partly is. Because as we get older, it becomes harder to do the work to stay in shape. And it becomes mentally burdensome. It's no fun fighting a tactical retreat. We also tend to give in to the overarching societal bias that we should be old and act old. When everyone is telling you you're old, you start to act old. And being old 
takes so much work. You're losing the battle on so many fronts that it gets exhausting, both physically and mentally, to keep up with it. So let's walk through it. You are losing that high-end VO2 max ability to perform. So you can you can counteract that. You can fight that. How do you do that? Well, by working out at near max as much as possible. And anyone who has spent Friday night at the track knocking out 1600s knows how much of a pain in the keister that is. But you're also losing muscle mass and strength. So how do you fight that? Well, you have to hit the weight room. Do regular strength work. But wait, you're also losing flexibility and the stretchiness in your tendons and your ligaments. How do you fight that? Well, you gotta stretch and rehab. But wait, you're also losing your ability to recover quickly. How do you fight that? Well, you gotta work out less frequently. But wait, you're also losing your balance, so you better throw in some yoga. You can see why we might get discouraged. All we used to have to do was throw on our shoes and head out the door with the dog four or five times a week. Now it's a full-time job, even if we can avoid injuring ourselves, which we're more likely to do. So in summary, based on a cursory drive-by of the available information, you're healthier and winning at any age if you're leading a healthy lifestyle. You lose fitness, muscle mass, flexibility, and balance as you age. And the older you get, the faster you lose it. You lose that top-end performance faster, more quickly, than that low-end ability to grind. You can mitigate all these effects if you're willing to work at it. Your mental attitude is important to keep you from throwing in the towel. And everyone is on their own journey, and your mileage will vary. But it turns out it's a use-it-or-lose-it situation, so keep moving. You can't outrun the Reaper, but you can put some distance on him and make him work to catch you. And now for today's featured interview. All right, Robert, why don't you give us the 200 words or less on who you are and what you do and the stuff you're talking about here. I am a um, 66-year-old business consultant but I'm known for doing endurance work. 12 Ironmans, one of the original Ironman guys, just did seven marathons in seven days on seven continents, and I did a Navy SEAL Hell Week. And my goal is to choose how I age, and so I wanted to do an experiment on myself in my mid-60s to see if I could grow older and stronger at the same time. And I do that because I still train special ops candidates in the Air Force and with the Navy, and so I wanted to stay relevant, so I stay in the game, work out, try to do the stuff that the kids do so I can have a way to speak into their lives and challenge them. But it was fun to see if you can grow older and stronger, and um, I like to talk to groups a lot on we choose how we age. Yeah, it's very pertinent. Where I am in my life is I'm getting older as well, and I've been an endurance athlete for the last 25 years or so, and I'm trying to figure out how much of the aging process um, is mental, how much is actual, and exactly how to manage it. And it's very timely. You have your story there. You went through the SEAL Hell Week at 66 years old. And this was part of the SEAL Fit experience? Yeah. SEAL Fit was developed to train Navy SEAL candidates, and they have a 50-hour nonstop challenge, which if a kid can make it 50 hours, he can usually make it through Hell Week. 
there's a mental breaking point. And when you do a Navy SEAL Hell Week or BUDS, uh, you start Sunday afternoon at 5 o'clock, and it goes till Friday afternoon at 5. And most kids will quit or implode prior to the first two days. And if you can get to the second night, if you can get to, to Tuesday night, most kids can make it through the rest of the week because there's a, there's a mental barrier there. And so Seal Fit then takes you to a 50-hour place in and out of the ocean, up and down mountains, CrossFit games, but with log PT and stuff. But they uh, take kids and say, let me show you what it's going to take if you want to try to be in a special ops community, Rangers, Pararescue Air Force, Navy SEALs, Force Recon. And um, I wanted to see if I could do that. I was a pararescueman in my 20s, so I knew mentally somewhat to expect, but my body had changed in 40 years, and I wanted to see if my body could go back to the place where I could endure something that I did in my 20s. And it was an interesting experiment. I'm glad I got through it, and I don't want to ever do it again. Yeah, because when you talk about that week, it's a lot. It really is a lot. And they're not walking into this cold. They're training for three to six months just to start, right? they got to be That's able right. to do like right. a bazillion push-ups and a bazillion chin-ups and like all this crazy stuff constantly. And then they run your temperature up and down by dragging you in and out of the cold ocean. It's not easy. It's designed to break you. It's designed to break you because the key is when you're doing special ops stuff, we know who you are when you're in your sound mind. But you don't know who you morph into when you're out of your mind. So we need to take you out of your mind into a place that you've never been and then see if you can act like a leader and make leadership decisions for your team when you're out of your mind. And a lot of guys are great when everything's normal. But when you put them in these super stress situations, they become selfish and self-centered, and it's all about them, and they don't think about their team, and you don't want to let a kid graduate into that kind of experience if they don't have the right personality. So whether it's we make you hypothermic or we take you in some other place where you've never been before, we want to watch how you're going to handle a completely negative environment and who you morph into or change into emotionally under that kind of stress because you have guys' lives at stake because of you. Yeah, and the parallel to some of the ultra-endurance sports that we play around in is there as well, right? And people choose to do a 100-mile race, for instance, because it enforces that level of suffering that's beyond what's normal. And it's not because suffering is good. There's nothing innately good about suffering, but the suffering itself becomes a vehicle to find out something about yourself, right? Correct, correct. As we teach the 20X principle, which is there's 20 times more potential in you, and then here's the caveat, that you've ever allowed someone to bring out of you. And so most of us go to our level of comfort or suffering, but we never let somebody into our life who says, no, no, there's way more potential in you, but we're going to drive you past where you want to go. And if you'll let us, we'll prove to you that you can do things that you don't think you're able to do or want to do. But if you get through it, you'll have more confidence than you've ever had in your life. Right. I mean, and that's the whole secret to any endurance event, right? Is that when you get through it, you go, oh, my God, I can do this. What else can I do? Right. So it sort of it opens up a Pandora's box. You're never the same. You're never the same. Right. So people have these epiphanies. And so very few people want to go into that world. But you and I and those who do go into that world, we've had life-changing experiences because we've gone past our limits and found out that there weren't limits. There were just pressing boundaries further and further. All right. You and I wanted to talk about the uh, getting old stuff, right? 
So aging athletes, what's real and what isn't, right? I mean, some of the bullet points for me are the recovery takes longer, right? I don't feel like I can put the same workout load on myself and come out the other side with benefit, right? I can still suffer through it, but I don't get that big bounce. Like when you're in your 20s, your 30s, you could put an extreme workout load on yourself and then get an equally extreme bounce on the other side of benefit. I don't feel like I get that bounce anymore. It's more of the dead cat bounce, right? And then the the amount of maintenance required just so I can maintain that schedule starts to outweigh the, you know, the time I have available to do it. So talk to some of that stuff, what you found. Is that real or is that in my head? I think it's different. You know, you're mainly a runner. What happened to me was I've done 12 Ironmans and I've done 11 since I turned 50. And so I would look at the guys in the 60 to 65 category or the 65 to 70, or the 70 to 75, and I would go up to them and I'd say, hey, you know, it's really good to see you here. How's it going? And they would say, I can go all day, but I can't push the pedal on the bike the way I used to, or I can't pull in the water in my swim the way I used to. And you can see their tensile strength begin to to go. You just look at their arms and their, their chest and the muscles change. So I said, what's the key? And I felt that body weight stuff, strength work would reverse that frail lack of tensile strength the thing that I was going into. And so I said to myself, I'm going to go back into body weight stuff, and I went into CrossFit, but I wanted to see if I could get overall body conditioning where, like I'm in a group of guys over 60, and one guy does CrossFit for mountain biking, but that's his, it's his base conditioning is doing CrossFit, then it morphs over into his mountain bike. One guy's a mountain climber in the Alps. So he does CrossFit, and then he goes and does the Alps stuff. One guy is a bicyclist, and he does it. Another guy's a golf. And so we're all over 60. We call ourselves the Neanderthal guys. But none of us are doing CrossFit just to do CrossFit. It is a base workout that gets us to the thing that we try to do. And we find that all of us are stronger because we're doing muscle groups that we would never have done on our own. And, of course, the the instructors modify it for us. You're over 60. We're going to do probably more reps, less weight, and... We're just going to work on conditioning. And so for me, it was thrilling to watch my body just really change from a swim, bike, run, lean guy to a guy that was doing all kinds of stuff I hadn't done since my 20s, which was strength work. I mean, like my pull-ups went from 3 to 15. And it took me two and a half years, you know, dead arm pull-ups and stuff. And it was just fun to see that my body would go back. So when I would do an Ironman, it was a lot easier because my body was conditioned aerobically and anaerobically and it wasn't like I just I was the same body type as I had been. So it was wonderful for me, and I hope to do that for the next 20 years. Yeah, I think I have a similar story where um, you talked to Joe Desena of the Spartan thing. I did a, a Spartan Beast a couple of years back, and to do that, I had to do a lot of body weight training, you know, a lot of, um, a lot right. of yoga, a lot of that stuff. And I found my running got really good for that fall just because I had that overall body strength. Right. Right. So, yeah, what you're saying makes sense. Yeah. It just seems like if I'll do my if I'll do body weight stuff over all my muscle groups, when I get to running, I just feel like I'm a stronger runner. I just feel like I'm a stronger swimmer. I'm just you just feel like you're better conditioned because we only use the muscle groups that we use. And we get outside those muscle groups. We're not in shape. We're only in shape for the muscle groups that we use. Yeah. And I think um, a lot of that is core. Right. It's your core benefits from that. And what your core gives you is good form. So when you get late in an event, you don't slump your form and that allows you to perform longer. 
right? Because you can maintain your form, which by definition is going to be a better performing way to do it, right? Right. I would say that core is everything. If you can get a strong core, you'll stand up straight. You won't pull up, pull your muscles the way you used to. You can bend and do some things. If you have a weak core, you're going to have trouble with a bad back and all kinds of issues as you age. Right. And just specifically, if you're out trying to run a marathon or something, you see these guys that come in and they're running at sort of a a 45-degree list to the side because their core gave out on them, right? Correct. Um, Correct. Yeah. Absolutely. Core gets so see, much, you know, much more. And, guys... and that's part that's part of the maintenance though. Well, that's what I mean. You tend to well, I, what I found is I have to put a lot more maintenance work in. You can't just strap on the shoes and run. Correct. My father's back went out on him at forty three years old and he went into the hospital and they they sent him home and I come home from college and he's in a hospital bed in my bedroom. And I say, Hey dad and he goes, Don't do this and I said, What'd you do? He said, I was playing tennis, my back locked up on the serve. And I said, now what? And they said, they're going to cut me if, they don't, if I don't work on my core. So he did what we call back then isometrics. And he did isometrics yeah. while laying in bed. I'd watch him crawl in the toilet and stuff. Anyway, he said to me, are you learning anything from this? And I go, yeah, don't screw up your back. And he goes, yeah. And so when he finally got out of that hospital bed and went back to work, he did sit-ups and core work till 101 years old. I buried him at 101. Yep. And he stood up yep. straight. He never had a problem with his back again when he worked on his core. Yep. So I learned the lesson. I'm not trying to be some jock, but I sure like not having a bad back. Yeah. But, I mean, that being said, you're doing the CrossFit, right? And CrossFit has a lot of explosive movements. And that's something else I find I'm losing as I get older is that uh, sharp, explosive that's movement, a- right? It just isn't as fast as it used to be. Your quick muscle twitches are gone. Right. And the joints are a little looser. Correct. And it really, the tendons I, I are a little like looser. all that. I, I like practicing slow muscle twitch and quick muscle twitch. I like seeing if I can do some explosion. It just works in life. If you're just not stuck walking slow, being slow, responding slow, it's just good for you. It's good for your nervous system. So the other question that we talk about is how much of this is physical, how much is mental, right? Because I'm reading David Goggin's book right now, and if you listen to him, it's all mental, right? It's all mental. You can do anything. You can think yourself through that broken knee, right? It doesn't matter. And to some extent, that's true, but how sustainable is that? I mean, I'm training my speed work at a pace where I used to run a marathon, right? So that's a minute slower. And how much of that is mental versus physical? Mental can trump the physical. We all know this because we're endurance sports. So you can think yourself through these moments of suffering or these moments, these low points. But I mean, no amount of positive thinking can reshape a hip joint or grow cartilage, right? Or can it? No, no, no. I mean, Dave is a unique creature. And so there is something about learning. I mean, we we got through his third hell week. He practiced suffering in, in, in his first hell week, in his second hell week, you know, buds one, buds two. He was in his third buds, and he'd already been through failing at pararescue. So it wasn't like he was cold turkey going through pain. He'd been working on this mental pressure in his brain for a long time. And I think you can learn about mental pain, but you've got to practice it because the first time you do it, it's just overwhelming. But once you sort of understand you and your brain and learn how to regroup, you can do things. It's never easy, but you can learn how to cope. And David had learned how to cope. Yep. So how do you, I, how do you I approach? I did, 
I did 238 miles across Greece last year in eight days. And was that the, the is that the Spartathlon? Yeah, we went from from Sparta to Thermopylae, redoing the the movie 300. Yeah, and the legend has it that they did it in eight days. So a bunch of Navy SEALs, myself. We did it as a fundraiser for the guys that died in Benghazi. So the four operators that were with the ambassador who died, uh, those guys knew those guys who died, and they wanted to do something for their families. So they redid a warrior's march, and that was Sparta to Thermopylae to raise money. Well, the challenge was I had not ever embraced that kind of suffering. I didn't know what I was getting myself into. I was in shape, but I had no clue. Anyway, I popped both my toenails off on the first day on a four-hour descent. We went six hours up. Uh, climbing out of Sparta, and then we did a four-hour run down, and I popped both my toenails off. And so for the next seven days, I worked through blisters and blood and all kinds of issues, and I was thinking, I get it, David. I understand that you can get into a pain place where you can learn to work through it. I never want to do that again. Wish I'd never done it, but you can learn about pain. And as you do with your 100-mile runs and 50-mile runs, you learn how to go through that stuff. Most people don't. But it's a wonderful thing to know that you can press through, and it's some, you know, a lot of it, like David says, mental. But you got to practice a bit because it's overwhelming the first time you go through that stuff. Right, and suffering isn't the point. You shouldn't plan it to go that way. You know what I'm saying? You, you still have to show up with the training to be able to participate. Right? That's sort of the the down payment or the ante to do these things. You can't just show up and suffer, although some people do. It's not just all about suffering and pain. It's about how do you manage that, right? Right. I don't like to suffer. I'm a wuss. If there's a way around suffering, I'm all for getting around suffering. It just seems like I run into it, (laughs) whether I like it or not. And then I got to figure out what I'm going to do with it and how do I handle it like you. And so I'm not a big suffer guy, but once it's there, okay, I've been here before, let's work on this. So if you, this is the other thing, right, is that if you're looking at some of these events, I know I can go out and I can push hard through a road marathon and hurt myself, and I can train for that. You know, I can spend three months down the track doing 1600s. I know I'm capable of that, but I kind of don't want to anymore, right? So as you get older, for an aging athlete, how do you advise people to approach it so that you get that maximum balance between performance, health benefit, and joy, right? Because if it's just suffering, then why are we doing it? Correct. You've got, as they say these days, you've got to have a why. And that why has to be that you really like something. People say to me, what are you doing? And I say, you don't need to do what I do because you don't like it. And you don't need to do anything that you don't like. So find something that you like. If you don't like doing 100-yard dashes anymore, I guess you're done. You know, if you don't like a marathon, you're done. But if you like something, then you get to practice enjoying it and working at it and making it a skill and a craft. And at 40, I was one way. At 50, I was another way. At 60, I was another way. And at 65, I was still refining what do I really like? Is it fun? Is it exciting? Or is it just suffering and it's it's no good anymore? And I think everybody has to find what it is that they enjoy and they can't put on somebody else's armor. You got to, this is either fun or it's not fun anymore. So two things there. One is you have to do what's appropriate for the season of life you're in, right? And that's going to be different. And the second thing is, and this is a question for you, which is as another thing that happens as you get older, you actually get happier as you get older. But part of that is you start drawing your circle smaller, right? You start being happier with what you have, less friends, but better friends, less things, but better things. 
when you look at what we're doing, how do you keep yourself from, in your endurance sports, right, in, this, in your health, from drawing that circle too small, right? How do you keep yourself signing up for these adventures when it's somebody like you who's done everything, right? I get great joy being around young people. And so I just like going to the gym and hanging out with 20, 30, 40-year-olds and have them say, hey, uh, hi, Mr. Owens. And I go, my name's Robert. And they go, okay, Mr. Owens. <laughs> and I go, I'm stuck. You know, I'm Mr. Owens. And, and I like feeling good, and I like being around positive, energetic, still dreaming people. My age group is talking about medications. They're talking about their <laughs> aches and pains. I talk to guys, yep. and I go, how long have you been pregnant? And they go, you know, I grew the stomach, and I got a lot of money invested in this thing. And I just say, well, then, if you, if you like looking pregnant, then knock yourself out. But I'm worried about your back. I don't have any friends, per se, that are my age. Because if I hang yeah. out with them, they'll want me to act my age. But when I'm with young people, they don't treat me like I'm old. And I'm excited to be around them and to listen to them. And I want to go out happy, positive enjoying life, not thinking I'm aging and, and getting crappy, you know? Yeah. And so, some people, they like talking about doctors and things. And I, I don't like doing that. I like to talk about, isn't this fun? And I wonder if. Right. So the two things you said there were, one is put yourself in uh, places and with people who are younger people are doing the things that you want to be around, right? And that will pull you into their orbit, so to speak, and take energy off of them. But the other part of that is, and this plays very positively into aging, is you can share your wisdom with them, right? That's how you add value, and that's a positive feedback loop, right? You bet. You bet. And for me, I'm really fortunate because I still get to go fly to Lackland Air Force Base and spend time with special ops kids, the candidates in training, you know. I get to go down and work with these guys who want to be Navy SEALs at SEAL Fit. And so I'm an older guy, and I can listen, and I understand, and I shake my head some, and I'm just happy to be in the game around people that are dreaming to do really fun, extraordinary things. And it makes me All dream right. and want to do extraordinary things too. So what's next for you? I'm not sure. I probably won't do anything till 70. I'm 67 now. I'm going to be 68 next month. I'm thinking what I really would like to do is something that's not about me, I'm thinking about maybe running across the United States on an awareness thing on veteran suicide or hmm. on PTSD. I, I want to do something where I do something for others and others get tangible benefits of something that I'm doing. I mean, when we did Greece, we raised money. And that made me feel good because I raised money for pararescue guys coming home with issues. And they raised money for the Navy SEAL guys, families who died. And everything I do now, I want to do it to benefit somebody else to give to some other group. And I, after you do seven marathons in seven days on seven continents, it's like I don't need to do more endurance stuff. I don't need to do a Navy SEAL thing, but I would like to maybe do something where maybe I could run Monday through Friday and then end up in a little town and then find all the vets in the area and then have a talk with them and blah, 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 and raise some money or something and then run to the next town and I'm just thinking out loud. But something where I can help somebody. No, I think no, 70 I, is a good time to try to do something fun. You know, that's funny because I'm going to be 57 in November, and I was thinking about when I was 60 doing the same thing running across the country. So we're on the same schedule. So Yeah, that'd be fun. I, I don't need to be a big doer of some big thing. I've done about as much as I – and I sort of want to go to 20 Ironmans. I sort of would like to be the oldest Ironman in the world. The oldest Ironman right now is 83. I'd like, you know, if I could stay in shape till 84, that'd be a nice goal. Yeah. But really – 
it's now about giving back and finding a cause and driving that cause and using my background to help drive that cause and make a difference. Yeah, that's uh, laudable. That's valuable. All right. So um, do you have any links or anything that you want folks to, to look at or find you or, or anything like that as we move towards the uh, exit here? Yeah, I do a lot of speaking to a lot of groups. To the older folks, I speak on, you know, you choose how you age. To the middle-aged guys, I speak to, you better find your rhythm because it's hard to change after 50 and get it together. And then the young people, I talk about this potential that if you'd really let a mentor or a coach work with you, they'd develop you far beyond what you think you can be developed. My website is my name. It's Robert Hamilton Owens. Hamilton, I uh, like to stage play. RobertHamiltonOwens.com. And I got a book coming out this month on the five events that I did for turning 66, which uh, Joe DeSena was gracious enough to say, you're the, the fittest and mentally toughest 66-year-old in the world. And I said, Joe, that's not true, but it's nice of you to say. But the book will come out, and I'm writing a companion book on how to do the first book. So the second book is, I, I feel so bad for some of these kids that get involved in things and they quit. And it's because they didn't study right. They didn't prepare right. They say afterwards, I shouldn't have done this. And I say, no, you should have done this, but you didn't prepare correctly. You can, mm. you have the potential to do this, but you walked in blind. So like we do 150 kids in Air Force Special Ops, and we may graduate 30 on a big day. And most of the kids pull the plug on themselves. They just go, oh, I can't do this. And we say, no, you can but you didn't watch the videos, you didn't read the books, you weren't mentally in the game ready for what we're going to put you through. But you have the talent, and so I'm writing a book on, if you'll read this book, you can do extraordinary things. Hoping that special ops kids, if they want to be special ops, they'll read the book and do what the seven chapters say before they come in the military so they don't have to find themselves being a quitter when they get in. Yeah, yeah. All right, you'll have to make sure you send me a copy of your uh, first book, The uh, Narrative, and maybe we'll... Oh. Uh, circle back around on that. But uh, yeah, like I said, you can give me all those links and I'll put them in the notes so people can find you. All right? Sweet. Yeah. Hey, great talking all to you, right. Chris. Yeah, I'm glad we could make it work. Thank you so much. Yeah, and me I too. Appreciate it. I appreciate it. I'm honored to uh, talk to somebody who's doing it so well. Well, I don't know about that. We just want to encourage the listeners that they need to dream a dream where they're having fun and they like it, but it gets them in shape and they live good. Yep. Yep. Anybody can do it. That's right. Thank you. All right. Thank you, sir. All right. See you Cheers. Later. Yep. Cheers. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. Forty percent more. How much do we really have to give? And how do we give it? The premise here is that we all have this internal limiter that keeps us from realizing our true potential. And the sentiment comes in different forms. In my interview with Robert Owens Hamilton, he alludes to this concept of limits being mostly in our heads, right? Whether that limit is age or ability, it can all be overcome. It's all in your head. That's what he seems to say. That's the sentiment. And I've been reading David Goggin's book. If you don't know who David is, look him up. He's pretty easy to find. I've been reading his book, and his book is all about this. It's the main point of the book. David puts a number on it, 40%. He says that after you think you have hit your limit, you can go another 40%. And I have said it myself in not so many words. I have said anyone can qualify for Boston. It's mostly mental. So I'm guilty of this assumption that the achievement is there for the taking, and all it takes is commitment, hard work, and mental attitude, right? This is a muddy, unclear spot we find ourselves in. 
Surely, we would all agree that the vast majority of humans are capable of so much more than they think. An endurance sport is a great way to break through to these, to break these assumptions, a way to break through that limiting wall. On the other hand, I find myself asking, how much more is there? And when and where do we draw that line? What is the cost of that extra 40%? And it's muddy because there is that kernel of truth. We can always do more. We can always give more. You can't argue that. But the way it is framed is that once you break that barrier, it's all unicorns and roses. Like somehow you're a different person. You're freed from the constraints of physics. And as I have found out the hard way, the reality is that on the other side of the wall is more wall. And that's okay when you have that breakthrough, that achievement where you've done that thing you've never done before, that thing you didn't think you could do. It does. It opens up possibilities. It changes you. But there are diminishing returns and there are trade-offs. It's a bit of a Zeno's paradox. The closer you get to your full capacity, the harder those extra achievements get. And you know what Robert and David don't tell you? Is that they are amazing natural athletes. They would be close to the top in any sport they chose. Life just happened to put them into a sport they were really good at, SEAL training. And some special combination of nature and nurture has made them incredibly mentally strong people as well. That's not to take away from their accomplishments. They broke through and continue to break through their life constraints. They don't listen when someone tells them they can't. They're too old. They're too disadvantaged. They don't have the experience. They, they just don't listen. They push through. And Goggins, for example, has on multiple occasions run on broken bones. Because if you really decide to not quit, you can do that. If I were to be churlish enough to ask the question, why are you putting yourself in a situation where you need to run on broken bones, he would tell me that I'm missing the point. And this harkens back to that discussion on suffering that we've had here many times. Is there an inherent value to suffering? Is suffering itself something that we should seek out? And to David, the answer is a resounding yes. And he would say for two very good reasons. First, that suffering teaches us things about ourselves that we won't learn any other way. And second, that suffering as a practice builds a muscle, or more appropriately, a callus. We become desensitized or immune, not to the suffering, but to the mental effects of the suffering. By practicing suffering, we master suffering. Note those two words that I just used, practice and mastery. That's the real lesson here. Suffering is a practice that leads to a form of mental mastery. That's the value. That's what these guys are talking about. And in the end, there's no Faustian bargain here, no conflict of ideas. David and Robert have a unique take on how much more we can give and how deep that well really is. But they also underscore things that we have we have talked about and we understand and we've put forth many times. And the first is 
that if you put the question of how much more you can give aside, it comes back to every one of us is a unique individual with unique talents and unique capabilities. And we can maximize those, but our practice and our limits are unique to us. Second, we all draw our own lines. I choose to draw my line well short of running on broken legs. I don't think that makes me weak or a bad person. I think that makes me a rational human, just like everyone else, capable of choice. And I also, on occasion, choose to do other things that cause me to push my limits. David is right. That is my choice. Those are my limits. I'm setting them, and I'm accepting them, and I'm okay with that knowledge. And finally, this is not a game any of us are going to win. As we have discovered many, many times, this endurance life is a journey, not a goal. And I'm perfectly okay with giving 39.8% more and being able to walk the next day on my journey, because this is not the last stop. We'll get there, but I'm not hurrying the train along by acting suicidal. And I love listening to and reading about the inspirational exploits of these men. It keeps me from throwing in the towel on lots of little things that frustrate me. It helps put in context all those aches and pains that really are inconsequential and the excuses that we make that really are just laziness. But my friends, it's your life, it's your line to draw, and it's your journey. So you find your limits. You spend some time in your extra 40%, but be true to yourself and be safe. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Well, my friends, you have used your willpower to rise above the limitations of age and poor thinking. To strive valiantly, you've given that 140% to the end of the Run Run Live podcast, episode 4-417. And like I said, since we last talked, I took some time off, but I got a couple of weeks of training I can get in before I have to taper into my next marathon at Bay State. I also have that race down in Nantucket that I'm going to do with Gary in a couple of weeks. That'll be fun. We'll see what I can do, but I'm not mortgaging the house on this marathon. Like I said, I counted up the races I ran this summer, and I've been doing a lot of races, and that's that's a lot for an old boy like me. So they released the statistics for Boston today, and even with making the cutoffs five minutes faster, you would have needed to beat that qualification standard by a minute and 39 seconds to get in to Boston for 2020 next spring. Or, to put it another way, about 3,200 runners who qualified didn't get in. It's a brave new world out there. So let me tell you a couple of Ollie Dog stories to take you out. And by the way, send me an email if you want me to talk about something different. (laughs) Uh, First of all, I had him out yesterday on a trail run with me. My day got hosed, so I couldn't get out until it was almost dark and it was pissing rain. So there's a point about three miles in where it opens up and you can get to the pond off the trail. There's an opening there. Uh, In the old days, there used to be a house there, you know, but all that land is all parkland now. And so there's a break in in the bushes, basically, you can get out to the pond. And I usually stop here to let the dog take a drink or go for a swim. Not this dog. But the other dog, the last dog, Buddy, 
So I did the same thing with Ollie. So I pulled out to the opening and I told Ollie to go get a drink, right? He's learning the trails. Now, this late in the day with a full heavy rain going, the surface of the pond looked solid as a cement floor. You know, it's reflecting that gray. And he went running into it as if he was going to run out onto this floor, (laughs) pretty much full tilt scamper. And he went right under and he was quite surprised, but he wasn't, you know, he, he wasn't in any kind of danger or jeopardy, but he was quite surprised. And he, uh, he did manage to dog paddle himself back to dry land. And I'm pretty sure he's never going in the pond again, but we'll see. Buddy was always afraid of the pond or afraid of swimming until we used to hang out with a Labrador retriever who taught Buddy how to swim. And then he loved it. So Friday morning when I got up, Ollie had been sick in his cage, so he left me a fairly disgusting mess in his crate. So I toweled him off. You know, this first thing in the morning, he get out of bed, and he got to towel him off. You got dragged a blanket out. Uh, I carried the that hard plastic liner, thank God for the hard plastic liner, out into the yard and hosed it off. And then I went upstairs and threw the towel and the blanket in the washer and turned it on. So that's how my day started. And then my wife gets up and starts yelling at me for running the washing machine at 6 o'clock in the morning. I'm like, really? <laughs> and I explained the situation to me. And she asked me one of those questions. And my wife asks me a lot of these questions. I don't know if other men have similar uh, experience. But they ask you these questions that there are no answers for or, or no answers that make any sense. She says, did he eat anything he wasn't supposed to? He's a four-month-old high-energy border collie pup. If he's awake, he's trying to eat something. And it's usually not something he's supposed to. I can't remember the last time I didn't see him eating something he wasn't supposed to. But, you know, that's it. I reverted to being a beginner parent again. My life is wrapped around picking up bodily fluids and trying to keep my young friend from from killing himself. And I'm not sure if I'm equipped for it anymore. May the gods lend me patience, and I will see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry. Let me adjust my chair. It's making a lot of noise. 